This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, where Roy and Margaret Fitzwater of Navigator Church Ministries led a track called Crockpot Church Cultures in a Microwave World. They've provided the listeners for our podcast with a free PDF resource called the Start Small, Grow Slow Strategy, which leads readers through a pastor's journey to building a disciple-making culture. It's available for free at discipleship.org slash navigators. That's discipleship.org slash navigators. Here's today's track session from Navigator Church Ministries. So happy to be here. I'm so looking forward to doing this. Um, and grateful for the opportunity from our friends, the Navigators. But I want to start out by telling you that um, I, when you hear my voice, I, I don't want you to think that you're hearing me in terms of my opinions. You, I will give you almost no opinions in this. Mine, all, all of this is is facts. And sometimes facts can be brutal, and sometimes facts can be nice. But these are just facts. I have talked to, at this point, this started in 2004, I've talked to thousands of, thousands, I think truly thousands of people, but pastors often, hundreds and hundreds of pastors, because what I get to do is, and you're taking the survey right now, is you'll get an opportunity for a consulting call if you want to at the end of the survey. And if you want one, you'll probably talk to me. And what we do is we go for an hour, and I talk to pastors and their teams all the time who've done this survey. And when you get through this, I want you to think about what kind of information we're talking about for that hour. It's not about attendance. It's not about tithing. It's not about volunteers and how to get another. It's not about that. It's about where your people are in terms of their spiritual relationship with Christ and how good a job are you doing in growing that relationship. And that is the key. And a lot of churches don't want to know that because the news is not always good. In fact, it's frequently not good. So we're going to get into that. But I want you to be comfortable with hearing these facts and, and trying to take me out of the equation. I'm, I, am only, I, I am nothing but a voice for the pastors and half a million people who have taken this survey. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Disciple-making cultures and churches. Let's get started. What is discipleship? How does it work? When you hear the word discipleship, it's sort of this buzz thing. Um, I just think of it as spiritual growth. It's kind of like, how well are we doing at growing people in their relationship with Christ? How well are we doing with all of that? And how does it work? And you know what? When I was at Willow Creek and I was a communication director back in 2004, we were sure it, we knew how this worked. How did you think we, what did you think we thought happened? How did people grow in their relationship with Christ? Well, it was easy. They went to church. That's how they did this. Okay, this is how it works. Because what we would do here is someone would come into the church. You see that question mark? They're wondering about God. They're just kind of walking through the door. Then they're getting involved in all these retreats and small groups and weekend services and all this stuff. And they're coming out. And what are they when they come out? A fully devoted follower of Christ. That was the model. This is a church activity model for growth. That's what we thought. And honestly, I mean, I was the communication director. I killed myself getting messages out about all these things people could do. And I would, I would count all the heads and I'd make sure everybody was showing up. And that's exactly how we did it because we knew this is how spiritual growth worked. And then, you know, we counted heads, right? How, how do you figure out whether or not you're growing your people in their relationship with Christ? Are they showing up on the weekends? What's another thing? 
did they get baptized? And how many baptisms have we done this year compared to last year? We count that, don't we? All right. Yeah, we should. How many members do we have? How many attend? How many serve? How many tithe? Very important number there. So, you know, these are the things we use to do what? Measure whether or not we're doing what God called us to do, which is to grow people in their relationship with Christ. Am I, and is everybody tracking with me on this? This is how we do this. This is how we do this now. This is how we will do this this weekend, is to figure out how well we're doing that by counting heads. And so when we did this survey, Willow Creek got into there. We decided to do this survey, and I got involved, not because I'm anything, except I had a friend who was really a significant player in the marketplace who was the brand strategy expert at McKinsey & Company. If you've ever heard of McKinsey & Company, it's one of the top business consulting firms in the world. And I had worked it with this guy at Allstate. He came to visit me at Willow, and of course I groveled and said, do something for free for me, like all good church people do. And he wound up giving us four years of pro bono work, this head brand strategy, North America. He's the guy who created the survey. But you know what? What was the question we were asking? Were we asking whether or not, you know, people, how people were growing their relationship with Christ? We didn't have to ask that question because we what? We knew. We knew the answer. The only thing we wondered was what were we doing that was most effective at growing that relationship with Christ? Was it our midweek services? Was it our small groups? Was it our serving activities? What, what, was it our weekend services? What was working? All right, what was the best? Because that would allow us to do what? Move our resources around like good corporate stewards that we are, or church stewards, I should say, sorry. So we figured that this is exactly what we'd, we would see when we got this, this survey back. And this chart, I know it's a little bit weird, but we go from low to high on level of church activity. We had 6,000 people take this survey, all right, when we first did it back in 2004. And this is high to low spiritual growth. So we figured if people were low in their church activity, like they weren't involved in anything, what was going to be their level of spiritual growth? And that means behaviors like love of God, love of others, uh, or attitudes, love of God, love of others, behaviors like evangelism, tithing, that kind of thing. So what was going to happen? If they weren't doing anything in church, how high were these things going to be? No, not at all. They were going to be low, right? Because they weren't involved in church. And church was how we got spiritual growth to work. If they were involved in everything, raising their hands, getting engaged in everything we did, what was their level of spiritual growth going to be? This is not a trick question. It was going to be high, high. These were going to be our fully devoted followers. This is what we were out to find. But this is what the chart looked like when we got back, when we took the survey. Yes, it's funny. She's laughing over here. Because this was really amazing. What we found is that people who weren't involved in any of our church activities were not very engaged. They kind of loved God and others the same as people who did everything. What does that sink this in? All right. What does that tell you about church activities? They do not predict or drive long-term spiritual growth. That is just true. That's just true. That's a fact. All right, this is the fact. There is one little blip up here that you see this blue line kind of goes up there. There is one thing that rises when you're heavily engaged in your church. Tithing. Tithing does rise. But everything else, love of God, love of others, everything else is flat. Okay? Pretty much. Which made... My boss is not really happy about the results of this survey because what are your takeaways from a chart like this? That you're putting a whole bunch of effort and energy and money into activities and they are doing what? Nothing, all right? 
and, and so your takeaway could be, I remember Greg Hawkins saying to me, as he was the executive pastor, he said, Callie, it's just, it's just telling us why church work is so hard. This is why ministry is so hard, because it really just takes so much to move anything. Um, but, you know, we went back to the drawing board. My brilliant brand strategy guy said, this cannot be the answer. We have to look at everything. So he looked, he took, and I don't know if this is easy to understand, especially at 8.15 in the morning, but we took those 6,000 people, and instead of putting them through the grid of how often they did stuff at church, we looked through the grid of every question in the survey, and we found something that did work. We found something we call the spiritual continuum, and I'm just going to pop it up right here. We had one question out of 70 questions on the survey. We had one question that asked people, how would you describe your relationship with Jesus Christ? And I remember sitting in my office with the phone uh, with this guy who worked on the theology at Willow Creek helping me draft this question. We just had like eight statements. And people picked from those statements in terms of how they felt about their relationship with Christ. Were they, did they believe in God but not sure about Christ? We now call these the exploring Christ people. Did they believe in Jesus, and then they were, but they were working on getting to know him, kind of the new believers? These were the growing in Christ people. The close to Christ people were, I feel really good, I'm close to Christ, he influences everything I do. And the Christ-centered people, my relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship in my life. It guides everything I do. Let's see, aha, there, I'm going to pop this up right now. This tells you, now that we've gotten into this work, what percentage we see in almost all churches related to these groups. So if you're in, okay, so if you're a church leader, how many of you are in church work? How many of you, I assume most of the people in this room are in church work, okay? So what is the loudest voice you hear in your church, if this is true? The growing in Christ people, right? The people who are sort of the new believers. Let me, let me pace, let me, I'm going to go forward and then backwards. Because when we put all those 6,000 people through that grid, of exploring, growing in Christ, close to Christ, and Christ-centered. Look at my line. That's pretty cool, isn't it? All right? Because all of a sudden, I know what it's going to take to drive people up in their love of God, love of others, their evangelism, their serving, their t- all their faith-based, their attitudes about sacrifice, their belief in the Trinity, presence, everything. Everything moves up and to the right if they are moving from exploring Christianity to Christ-centered. But let's talk about these people for a minute, because I kind of got off track with this. Let's talk about who they are, and then we're going to talk, we're going to move on. Because the bottom line is, how helpful is this to you? You're a church leader. I just gave you, like, this great holy grail of this is how spiritual growth works. Is this helpful to you? Could you go home and do church work a little bit differently? I don't think it's very helpful. Putting people in boxes is not helpful. I have not been helpful to you. I will be helpful eventually, but I haven't been so far. All right. Let me introduce you to these people. All right. The Exploring Christ people. Let me tell you. Exploring Christ people. Who do you think these people are? These 10% who took the survey. Who are Exploring Christ people? They're seekers, right? They're in there kicking the tires on their faith. Not exactly. Not exactly. I have lots of churches in the survey who have 20% of their people are in exploring Christ. And you know how long they've been going to church? Decades. Decades. A lot of them, obviously, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, all right? Going to church forever. Habitual attenders. Are they exploring anything? They are not. And in fact, I'll tell you, there are truly seekers in this group. But if they, people stay in this category more than five years, you've lost them. You've lost them. If you, they've already heard all the like arguments and all that stuff for five years, and they still haven't bought in, 
you know, it's over. So, growing in Christ, on that happy note, if they do get to growing in Christ, these people can hang around in this area forever. Growing in Christ people, I kind of, my metaphor for them, is a high school adolescent. Um, and, okay, I'm going to, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, I know this, all right. What is your favorite memory from high school? Graduating. Graduating. <laughs> you didn't like high school. I loved high school. <laughs> all right, anybody else? Yeah. Homecoming, good. Okay, anybody else? Favorite memory. I haven't heard anything about going to class. Graduating is sort of like that. But homecoming, homecoming, football games, right? All this stuff. But the, the debate club, we were all into, we were, and when you were in high school, what was the big thing in your life? Was it going to class or was it all of the activities that we were involved in and that social network we were involved in? That's exactly who these Growing in Christ people are. They will raise their hand and do anything you ask them to do, but their faith is very self-contained within the church community. So consequently, when they leave the church community and go back into their lives, how confident are they? Okay, just like a high school adolescent, they're pretty cool when they're in a high school. We pretty feel pretty good about ourselves, but when they get outside of that and go into the real world after graduation, a little bit tougher. Not quite so confident. All right, the roots of their faith are not super strong. And, and you know what? When we told Bill Hybels this, he said, I've been teaching this wrong my entire life because he thought these people were your best evangelists. Why do you think that? It's fresh. fresh. They're excited. And all their friends are what? Not Christians. Not Christians. All right, so these were your best evangelists. No. These people over here, I'll get to this. I'm really jumping around today, but these people are your best evangelists, your Christ-centered people. By far, even people who don't like their church, dissatisfied Christ-centered people are your best evangelists. And in fact, we'll invite people to your church even if they're mad at you. Isn't that interesting? Because they know the church served them when they were earlier in their development. Okay, close to Christ people are these people. I love this. They're the ones who uh, are driving off the church campus in their car, and Jesus is in the passenger seat, and they talk to Jesus all week. You know, we connect. It's an influence in their lives in every decision they make, but it's not the only what? Influence. Jesus is not the center of their lives. They have other things in the center of their lives. Two or three, Jesus is up there, but he's a passenger. He's not the driver. The, close, the Christ-centered people are the Jesus-take-the-wheel people. You know the old song, right? Jesus, take the wheel, I'm giving up. You are it. You're the center of my life. And look at those numbers. These are pretty impressive, aren't they, actually? Because, and you have to wonder if it's real. This was one question, but I'm telling you, because this happens, it's real, When we looked through the lens of that one question and then looked at responses related to behaviors and attitudes and all this stuff about spiritual growth, what happened as people went along and grew in that continuum? It all went up and to the right. But that's not very helpful because that's not very helpful. You don't, what would be helpful to know for you now? Not so much what boxes your people are in. What do you want to know? Yeah, how do we get somebody from this exploring Christ bucket to the growing in Christ? If it's a linear path, and frankly, it typically is. All right, that's just a fact, and it's not popular, but it kind of is. So let's talk about that. Maybe I'm going, to get, I'm going to become helpful. That's my goal. All right. What moves people from one segment to the next? The exploring Christ to growing in Christ people movement one. What do you think moves them? I'm not going to, I won't, that's not fair. It's too early in the morning. I'll tell you what moves them. But what about movement two, this growing in Christ to close, and then close to Christ to Christ-centered? What is it? And you guys can have all these slides. Just ask Margaret. She's over there. You can have all these slides. Okay, so anybody, 
you can get me, I can write my name somewhere, and you guys, I'm happy to give these slides away. All right, Let's, this is really cool, because I'm going to, in a nutshell, tell you how the whole spiritual growth path works. A powerful pattern emerges, we say here. This is all about building trust through beliefs. If you do not believe Christ is the Son of God, there isn't much, you know, there isn't much going for your faith journey, right? So this is all about figuring out whether or not you believe and want to kick the tires on this faith at all. And if you do, then movement two is all about communicating through spiritual practices and movement three, increased sacrifice through faith and action. Now you look at that and you say, Callie, I'm not sure how helpful this is either, but let's try, all right? Because what I want to suggest to you is that the dynamics of a growing relationship with Christ are very similar to the dynamics of growing a relationship with anyone, any human being, all right? So let's think about this. You meet somebody at work. They kind of look similar. You sort of think you'd like to get to know them a little bit more. Maybe you're kind of deciding whether or not you want to get to know them. That's the deal. And that's what they're trying to do here. They're saying, do I want to get to know them? And once you decide you want to get to know them in your neighborhood or the workplace or what, what do you start doing? Communicating. Let's talk about a dating relationship. That makes it a lot easier. I decide I want to ask you out, or I decide I want to go out with you, right? Then we start communicating. You go to the movies, you go to lunch dates, or as a friend, you just get together for coffee, you start connecting. It's all about communication here because you're building, you're deepening. What does communication do? We know this from all of our marriage workshops. What does it do? It deepens relationships. It, it, it strengthens them, and it, can, it continues to affirm them over time. So communication is really crucial. Over here, movement three, it's all about just kind of falling in love. It's just about falling in love. It's about, I just give it all to you. And there's some, we'll talk about evangelism. We'll talk about some behaviors related to it. But really, the driver is an attitude. And I'm going to ask you this. All right. There's a question on the survey or a statement on the survey. What percentage of your people would very strongly agree with this? I am willing to risk everything that's important in my life for Jesus Christ. I'm willing to risk everything that's important in my life for Jesus Christ. What percentage of the people in your church would very strongly agree with that? 20% would be good. Wouldn't be that high? Don't think so? Okay. The, I see some, when you see strong, that is actually, if there was only one statistic I would look for in your survey, when I see that report, it would be that one. Because when you see strong marks on that, you know there's momentum in a church. This is all about falling in love. And let me explain why this is the stage where evangelism really makes the most sense. And I'll use a story from my daughter who just got married, actually, in May, but uh, was dating, was actually dating this guy, come to think of it. And she was in the um, suburbs, and I hadn't met this guy. I'd been hearing about him, right, over the phone when we'd talk. And she was out for suburbs for something, and I was driving her back into the city, and she was meeting him somewhere. And I said, why don't I just drive you to meet him? You know, I could just drop you off at wherever this thing was. And she said, no, Mom, you're not ready to meet him. And I thought, huh, what does that mean? Does it mean I embarrass her? Possibly. But what's the more likely reason? Why doesn't she want me to meet him? She loves and respects me, and she's not secure enough in the relationship to introduce it to someone she loves and respects. That's why, the, that's why this is the powerful phase for evangelism. Does that make sense to you guys? Right, that is true. This is a fact. This is where evangelism happens. 
But this is also not helpful. All right, let's, I'm going to keep getting helpful here. All right, here are the catalysts for these movements. And I know you can't read them because the slide is really small and it's really early. But I want you to kind of look at that list if you can. And I'm going to ask you something that is kind of helpful. If you think your, your congregation is full of the people who need to move from exploring Christ to growing in Christ, what is the number one? If you could only do one thing, make one thing happen, would it be... Get a, get a belief in personal God? Would it be a reflection on scripture? Would it be tithing? Would it be evangelism? What is the thing that would really knock them over into the growing in Christ thing? If you could only be focused on one. Any idea? This is tough. I can only do one thing. I focus on one thing to move my people who are seekers into the growing in Christ group. Does it have to be on the list? It is on the list. All the answers are on the list. I'm not that tricky. I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> Authority of the Bible, that's a good one. It's wrong, but it's a really good guess. All right? All right, that's really good. Anybody else want to take a good guess? Personal God. Personal God is also a very good guess, also wrong, but very close to the right answer. The right answer is salvation by grace. Because doesn't make sense? I mean, if you don't buy into salvation by grace, party's over. Okay? How about moving from that? Remember, your, your strongest, the loudest voice in your church is this growing in Christ group. You want to move them into a relationship with Christ, into that close to Christ and Christ-centered movement. What is the number one catalyst for this movement right here, from growing in Christ to close to Christ? Authority of the Bible is another wrong guess, but it's still a good guess. It's still good. All right? But I'll tell you what, the guess from back here is right. Personal God. It's a belief. It's not about doing. It's not reflection on scripture. It's not prayer. It's not evangelism. It's not serving. The thing that's going to knock the growing in Christ to the Christ or to the close to Christ group is personal God. And I'm going to tell you a story that will bring this kind of, I hope, to life, which is I was talking to a pastor in San Diego, and this pastor was just ranting, saying, I know that reflection on scripture is so important, but I can't get my people over the Bible. I can't get them to read it. What is going on? Why, why can't? Why isn't this working? And I said, well, I have no idea. But I said, I do know this, that the number one catalyst is not about um, spiritual practices for this group, even though communication is the thing that really is going to drive their relationship with Christ. The number one thing is believing that God is personally present in their lives because otherwise it just doesn't matter, right? Why do you want to communicate with somebody who's not trying to do something for you or trying to help you or trying to comfort you or whatever, right? Personal God is number one. What do you think is the number one catalyst in faith and action? The number one catalyst for increased sacrifice through faith and action. Nobody wants to guess anymore because you've been wrong. All right. Okay, see, is it serving? That's a, good, that's, all, that's a really good guess. Is it evangelism? You know what's interesting is it is this willingness to risk everything, that sentence that I just gave you. If you can get people to understand the sacrificial nature of faith and have them start to embrace that, that is the number one catalyst for moving people into that Christ-centered bucket. All right. But now I will be helpful. This will be so helpful. If there was only one thing you could do, you're leading a church that is filled with people in all of these segments. There is only one thing you could do. And it's on this list. All right. What is the number one thing that you would want? Margaret told you the answer to this yesterday, didn't you, Margaret? Okay. What is the number one thing you want them to do? That's right. You don't want them to read scripture. You want them to reflect on it for meaning in their life. That's the statement. All right. You want them to start connecting with 
reflection on scripture. This is the number, back to the numbers, guys. It's the, it's the only catalyst in the top five for each category. It is the vanilla of spiritual growth. And since a lot of did, were you all here for Margaret's thing yesterday? Okay, then I won't tell you. But vanilla just means it is over the top. It is double what any other catalyst on that list is for everybody. All right? If you could do only one thing, you would help people reflect on scripture for meaning in their life. You would take away all the excuses and embed that in their lifestyle as best you could. All right? And that, I can talk about a lot of strategies pastors have used to do that, but that is what is going to help people grow in their relationship with Christ more than anything. Why is that? Holy Spirit, but why can Holy Spirit work through that? It's all about, it's a relationship. He's talking to me. He's talking to me, all right? And I'm talking to him back. You know, it's all about that. So it's a reflection on scripture. So I feel like, well, that's actually kind of the whole point of personal spiritual practices is you're taking it away from, you're taking it away from uh, a place of um, down, you know, what am I talking about here? You know, I'm, it's coming at you. You know, you're really investing yourself, your own time. If you think about anything you do, any hobby, any kind of interest you have, any kind of relationship you have, it's your investment in that that really brings the joy, right? Brings the joy in it, and it grows and deepens whatever it is you're trying to tackle. And that's just true. You guys, some of these things are just so obvious. They're so obvious, so, but that is the truth. Do you guys have any questions on this? Because I just covered the basics of Reveal in 20 minutes. And now we're going to talk about how it helps the church. And this is where it's going to get really helpful, but a little painful too, I think. Okay? Any questions before I move on? Yes. It is. Personal God is, and it just makes sense though. So much of this, it's so often when I talk to pastors, Reveal rarely reveals anything. Have I revealed really anything to you that you couldn't have figured out? No, I'm just putting it on the table and saying this is a fact. These five facts back this up. So it's true. And so all of your gut feelings all these years, they're just all true. So that's, that's the best I can do right now. All right. You know what? Here's where I just can't answer that because all I, know, I don't know what people are thinking. The statement is, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the actual statement is. But it's basically that I believe that there's a God that's personally active in my life every day. Something like that. So what are people thinking? They're probably thinking that, you know, and that's what we're measuring. And they either very strongly agree with it or they sort of agree with it or whatever. And we look at at their responses to that. And what we see is when those responses, very strongly agree responses, go up, that's when we see them move into those more mature categories. And we, we, yeah. You know, all I can do is say we wind up with this almost like this constellation of things that happen. If you look at the 70 questions, which if you break it down, it's a little more than that. But, and I don't even think we have 70 anymore because we cut them back. But that, that was the original survey. You, we've got a constellations of things that just move all at the same time. So when that moves, we see personal God move a ton. That's the number one thing at that movement, right, when they're getting into the more mature categories. But other things that moves are, and I, I wish I could remember the top four, they're all personal spiritual practices, prayer, reflection on scripture, tithing moves. And there's one other one that moves, and I can't remember. It might be evangelism. But that there, there are a constellation of things that move. I... It's the Holy Spirit. You know, it's whatever has opened the... But, but opening the door for that is what the churches can do best to do what? Help people grow in their relationship with Christ. And that's, that's kind of where, where this is. And now, now I want to kind of go into how does discipleship work 
in a church? How do we gauge whether or not, we've talked kind of generally about discipleship cultures. Well, you know what we do? At, we make this really easy for, for pastors at Reveal. We kind of give them a grade. And pastors ask for this. They don't like it, but I keep telling them they're the ones who ask for this, okay? And when he gets his report after his survey's over, the first thing he's going to see is a number. And that number is truly, and it really, we pattern this statistically after the um, academic grading scale. Um, so it's like, whew, like, okay, all in the average, the average is 70, and you get, this is, a, this is your discipleship grade, if you want to look at it that way. Now, that's a little harsh. But it's really telling, and let me talk, talk about the things that are in this number. There are only nine things in the number, all right? And they're all equally weighted. Three things over here. What do you think is in the church's role? If you were going to throw anything important in how people feel about the church, what would you throw in it? Just general satisfaction with the church, satisfaction with the senior pastor? No. You know why? Because those are not catalysts for growth. Let me tell you the three things that are the catalyst for growth in a church. And if the church is doing them well, people are moving. If people strongly agree, really believe their church is helping them understand the Bible in depth, people are growing. If people believe you are challenging them to take next steps, people are growing. And the third thing is helping me develop a personal relationship with Christ. Those are the three things that if you get really strong marks, and those are the only three things here, satisfaction with how the church is doing those three things, are behind this number. Uh, peer and personal spiritual practices, it's reflection on scripture, prayer, and tithing. Interestingly enough, tithing is in there. And faith in action has a kind of a bundle of serving stuff, evangelism, and then that I'm willing to risk everything. And then here's your grade. It's a 72. That's not helpful. We still have not been helpful. Okay, so, so I, my dream was, all right, let's try to be helpful. Maybe we could go work with some of these denominations and we could say, here are the SVIs, we have spiritual vitality in Exodus, what we call SVIs, for every church in your denomination that's in our, in our database. And, and we could kind of put it on one of these like grids so they could see how people were doing. And this is how actually when we look at the, the, the general uh, database, all the churches, we see three groups of churches. If your grade, if you will, is below 60, you are struggling. If your grade is kind of between 60 and 75 or something, 65 and 75, you're average. A lot of churches fall into that. If you're over 75 into the 80s and 90s, you are thriving. So we go talk to a denomination, and I say, and this is what your SVI looks like. You know, great. So, if, so the regular chart would look like this. And I look like that. All right, this is tough, you guys, but it's going to wake you up. What, how would you react to this if you were a bishop or something? And you're looking at this saying, these are all the churches in my diocese, and this is what they look like. Would you be happy? Would you think you needed a little work? All right, are you surprised that some denomination would look like that? I'm talking to a denomination on Tuesday that looks a lot worse. All right, a lot worse. So this one, this one just happens to look like that. This is not helpful. It just makes us upset and mad, and I don't want to read your book anyway. So, you know, okay. So we decided we were really going to be helpful, all right? And we decided to go backwards, and we decided we are going to, this was our mother load here. We were going to go understand what it takes to be a thriving church. What is it, what are all those churches doing that are thriving? And we chose 16 churches that were in the 90s was a church in North Carolina. It was a big Baptist church in Orlando, Florida. It was a tiny little four-square church in East Helena, Montana. 
there was one church in Illinois, and it was not Willow Creek. The pastor of that church loves to bring that up. Uh, but it was a church called the Spirit of God, born out of really drug rehab, a drug rehab service kind of church. Fantastic church, all right? They were in there. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other big uh, non-denominational church in California, a church in Texas, a, a non-denominational church in Texas, uh, church in Far Rockaway, New York. Can you get much different than East Helena, Montana, and Far Rockaway, New York? My point being, these were in two churches in Detroit. So you had urban churches, we had rural churches, we had large, we had small, um, and they all were in like the high 80s and 90s. What is it that they did? And we thought, this is going to be so helpful, all right? Let's see if you think so. So we found there were five best practices, and I'm not going to go into these too much. Uh, In one of the books that we wrote called Move, we spend like the whole third of the book on this stuff, but, and some people like this and some people don't. And, okay, the first thing these churches do is they get people moving. All right, what does that mean? It's kind of like my boss used to say, uh, so when you get into the, walk into these churches, you feel like you're in a, on a spiritually moving sidewalk, like at the airport, all right? You know your next step. You're not going to be sitting. Those moving sidewalks may not make you walk, but they don't let you sit, all right? So you're moving. You're going somewhere. So, and there can be all sorts of on-ramp things that these churches offer, like orientation classes, membership classes, alpha classes, and there are lots of ways that they do this, but they get people moving. That's something they do really well. They also embed the Bible in everything. That does not mean they just use it as a weaking church teaching resource. It is everything. It's how they do staff meetings. It is how they judge staff. It's how they start conversations with people who are having problems. It's like in the DNA at the water cooler. It's in the conversation. They embed the Bible in everything. They create ownership. That means, and this is really small groups and serving, guys. I mean, but they really, what happens is people become engaged in the church and they buy into the vision of the church. And so there's a church in, um, oh, it's in Pennsylvania somewhere that, where they wear T-shirts that say, uh, on the back of it it says, oh no, on the front of it says, I don't go to church. On the back of it it says, I am the church. I am the church. That's what we mean, create ownership. How cool is that? All right. Uh, pastor the local community. This is, uh, they, do, they don't just, have a food pantry. They are, you know, up to their elbows with local community leaders, with schools, with chamber of commerce. They're figuring out what the, I can give you all these slides, all right, that they figure out what it is that are the problems in their community. I'm going to tell you a story about this uh, because, and then they get to work on solving the problems. They don't serve, they pastor. We use that as a verb uh, intentionally, okay? There's a, because what Willow Creek did a little survey when they weren't talking to us anymore, but they did another survey in there in South Barrington, which is where the big church is. They found out lots of people in South Barrington had never heard of Willow Creek, didn't know it was around, didn't even know where it was geographically. It's kind of hidden in this, you know, like lower part of the ground somewhere. But, but we had all these like little serving things that were, all, we had like a car's ministry over here, we had a food pantry over there, but what they decided to do is they put, they had a big capital fundraising came and they built a big thing that we call the care center now. And that is attached to the church. It is a food pantry that's the second largest in the state of Illinois, next to Chicago Food Depository. We, we give, we provide children's clothing, we provide dental services, we provide legal services. What that turned into was a doorway for people to come in who've never heard of Willow Creek, but heard about this great care center thing, find jobs, we have job fairs there all the time, and they walk from there right into our church. And our people who 
kind of struggled sometimes to find serving opportunities don't struggle anymore. I mean, because they're right next door. There's no excuse. You just walk from service right into the character. And you can always do that. Okay, so we now have, but it was inspired by this footprint survey that said, nobody's heard of you. Okay, they've heard of us now. They've heard of us now. And it's not to do that. It's to do this. It's to do this. It's have an impact on the people. I just talked to a church that made me so irritated. Okay, I'll just tell you this. Christian Reformed Church. It was in Canada. Were they in Canada? I'll say they were in Canada. Okay, because it was, what they were doing is they had this, this, they were this white Christian Reformed Church in this big Hispanic community. People were driving 20 miles to get to this church and driving 20 miles after. You know what their survey said? People wanted serving opportunities. People wanted them to be known in their local community as serving. And they were like, really? Because nobody, we don't come to church except like on Sunday. And, and it was like, it was sort of, it took a while for it to dawn, you know, that, that the community they were sitting in geographically not only hadn't heard of them, but if they had, they hadn't heard very good things. Right? Right? I mean, it was, some of these conversations can be, I try to be patient, but sometimes they're frustrating. All right, Christ-centered leadership. That's, okay, I have not been at all helpful to you guys. That is such a platitude. But it is true, and you know what? It is true. When we got these 16 pastors together, they had their, you know, they had their pads of paper. They were taking notes. They were learning from each other. They said, how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do this? They are all into learning, and nothing is ever good enough. Nothing's ever good enough. We're never going to get there. All right? We've got so much. We could do so much better. That's their attitude. Because they are fully devoted to being like Christ and growing people to be like Christ. And that's, we're never going to get there. So you're never good enough. And that's their spirit. That's where they're at. Not helpful, is it? Because it's not telling you how to do these things. And frankly, you know what we found out? People who had, I won't go all the way back, but who had SVIs that were in the 70s and 60s and had like distribution things that looked like they were all red and yellow. It's kind of daunting. Like, where do you start? What's the number one thing I should do? I don't know. So we did something else. I should take a breath here. I'm really doing this. I know I'm, it's a fire hose, isn't it? Breath. Okay. What we did is we said that we have done so much work and we have not been helpful. All right. So we're going to do something else. And what we did, and I have the, we have this brilliant statistician and PhD at the University of Texas who just has, is remarkable. And she took all of our data and she took all those, it says congregant characteristics here. That's all the spiritual growth stuff. All right, how, how mature is your congregation is basically the measure here. And then you know what she did? She measured best practices. She went into those five things, and she actually, when you get your survey, you're going to know how well you're doing on all those five things. How well are you doing in terms of really being a discipleship-making church? That's what those five things are, right? How well are you doing with that? And you know what we did? We threw all of our churches in, and we found... Did we find we had 2,000 churches? Did we find 2,000 unique churches? Were they all unique? Of course they are. They're all sort of unique, but actually they were more similar than unique. How many kinds of churches did we find? No fair cheating, people who've read my book, or the book, the Rise book. But any, how many kinds of churches did we find? Five? Good guess. Seven is out of Revelation, right? It's not seven, it's not five. But it's close. It's eight. We found eight kinds of churches. I'm going to introduce you to them quickly. 
All right, you can read about them in the book that we're giving away or whatever. We have it all over the place. This is just information. We are just trying to help. That we being all this stuff. All right, let's talk about these two. These are the first two kinds of churches. I bet you know these churches. This is called the troubled church. The troubled church. Their people are spiritually coasting. Their people are mad. We call it unhappy here. And attendance is declining. 14% of the churches in our database fall into the troubled church category. Over here, the complacent church. Do you know what? We, use the, we came up with these terms, and people said, you shouldn't use such negative language. And I said, but those are the words the pastors use when they talk to me. I mean, they talk about their complacent congregations and all this stuff. Complacent church filled with spiritual absence. They are filled with those exploring Christ people who have been coming for decades to the church and not really buying into the faith at all. Long-time spiritual immaturity, but they're happy. They're happy with their church. All right, so the difference between troubled and complacent is these are people who are mad and these are people who are unhappy. This is a hard place to be. Why do you think that would be? A troubled church where you've got a lot of dissatisfaction is a much harder place to be than a church that is thriving that has dissatisfaction. Why would it be so hard to be? Why is that such a hard place to be? And, and that's an unfair question, but I want you to think about it. And it's because, it's because when your people's faith are really, if the roots are really shallow, what are they dependent on? Remember that whole, like, mo- the whole relational movement? What are those people who are, are shallow in their faith, what are they dependent on? for their faith. They are dependent on the church. They are dependent on the church. And if they're mad at the church, their faith is just absolutely rock bottom. And so the troubled church has a lot of work to do. The, the uh, complacent church also has a lot of work to do, but at least our people are happy. So that means that if the leaders introduced something, they'd probably go for it. They'd probably say, okay, let's give it a whirl, okay? Troubled churches, not so much. And we'll talk about that in a second. All right, I'll do all three of these. These are my average churches. Let's start up here. The introverted church, and I'm going to go to this grid. I know this is hard, you guys, I, and I apologize for that. But they are up here. Do you see where this is on this congregant group? So their maturity level, an introverted church's maturity level is strong, but how happy are they with their church? Yeah. Not very much. See this on this horizontal line? Their, their position is strong maturity, but not a lot of satisfaction. They aren't so mad, but they aren't so happy either. A lot of Reformed churches fall in this category, okay, which is they've got, and, I, and they know that. They actually had me do a workshop called The Introverted Church, and we had 70 churches show up. <laughs> it was just amazing. But, but it's a very intellectual faith. You know, they're, faith, they're very steeped in the Bible, and this is a great place to be because people buy into the beliefs. They buy into the faith. They know where to find the book of Esther. They've been doing Bible studies forever. They just haven't been able to really, they've got blinders on somehow. They don't see the, the outward expression of faith as being, as being their next step. It's like they just don't get it, all right? So the intro, I love introvert. I've seen so many introverted churches become vibrant. It's just remarkable because all it takes is kind of waking, it's sort of waking them up, you know? That's not true of some of these other churches. Let me talk about the average church, church-centered faith, contented leaders, Little such the average. This is the hardest archetype. We call these things archetypes. To tell a pastor that the church falls into. Why would that be true? You'd think troubled would be the worst. It's not average is the worst. Why is that? Who wants? Who wants to be average? Who wants to be average? And I'm going to tell you, these average churches are filled 
with those growing in Christ people who are raising their hands and jumping into their activities and building new buildings and blah, 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 blah. They're doing all this stuff, but their actual faith is average. I remember looking at this executive pastor who was really unhappy and beautiful church in Texas. I think it was in Dallas somewhere, but we were, we were doing something with them. And he looked at me and he says, I've never gotten a 68 in my life. That was his score. I said, oh, I said, oh, well, okay. So, and that was a really interesting experience because they were doing this workshop trying to figure out what to do about their survey. And this executive pastor was not happy. And this senior pastor who looked like a clone of Bill Hybels was not happy either uh, because they didn't expect to be average. They expect it to be stronger than average. And we did this workshop, and, and it was, and I, the facilitator was just struggling. I was just there to observe, and he finally said, Callie, can you help us out? And I said, well, I hate to say it, but what we think is true is the antidote to average is leadership, and that's a platitude. But the bottom line is if your church is average, your leadership is what? It's, and it's not that it's average. It's that it's content. It's been lulled by those voices, those growing in Christ voices, and all the activity that's going on. And what do they think is happening? Spiritual growth, but it's not. It's not. It's kind of like the hamster wheel. You know, it's just kind of going on and on. Am I talking too long? I no, I'm doing great. Okay, spiritually. Okay, extroverted churches, spiritually undeveloped. These are great churches. I'm thinking when actually in Long Island, if you can believe it, an extroverted church <laughs> is a church where people are gung ho community service enthusiasts. They are all into serving the community. In fact, the camp, often these are church plants that have gotten in there and they have decided they're going to serve that community and that's going to be what's going to draw people into their church. And guess what they forgot to sort of do? Remind them that they're a church and not a nonprofit. You know, it's kind of like they're into the service, but they've kind of forgot, lost the juice here somewhere. And, you know, and it's so, it's so sweet. I mean, and, and we'll talk about the next step for these. But all of these churches can get better. I, I hope you don't mind my language around them. It's all just the way they are. But every one of these churches can get stronger, including these. And I'll just run through these. These are our congregants. Again, congregants, these are strong churches who love their church. All right? Three categories of them. I'll start with the hardest one to understand. Self-motivated. That's 10% of the database, one out of 10. Self-motivated. That's a weird, that's the most... Uh, unintuitive, if that's a word. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Who are these self-motivated churches? One pastor responded to me and said, I know who these are. These are the churches where my Christ-centered friends went to when they got mad at Willow. <laughs> you know, those are where they went. Those are self-motivated churches. And, um, and, I, and one of the case study we have in the book is, can you imagine leading a church that is right next to the, a denomination's campus where a lot of pastors go to retire? So you've got a congregation full of retired pastors, right? So they're self-motivated. They are truly self-motivated. These churches exist. I talk to them often. All right? Their people are sold. These are not Pharisees. They are sold out on Jesus. They are sold out in their spirit, in their heart, in their behavior, everything. But they're a little unhappy with their church, and you know why? And I'll tell you the story of me talking to another church. This was a church in Canada. And he couldn't understand what was going on. I said, well, sometimes in a self-motivated church... It's where you had a strong church, but the people sort of got the impression that the leaders were taking their eye off the ball. What were leaders doing? Maybe they had a capital campaign going on. Maybe they were doing a lot of church, like multi-site stuff. 
Maybe they were doing something. I don't know what they were. I remember one church in Texas where there was a big subdivision development going on. So like 3,000 houses were going up and they knew they were going to get a lot of growth. So they were getting ready for that. And people just got kind of concerned about the vision of the church getting its eye off the discipleship ball. And so that's a self And you know what? When I was talking to this pastor in Canada, he said, when I said that happens sometimes, he said, bingo, bingo. Because he had been hearing more, he had been hearing rumblings that people thought the church was getting too organized and was kind of getting away from the discipleship vision of the church. All right, so attendance is stable or declining. Self-motivated churches, energized churches. This is my favorite archetype: buzz of spiritual enthusiasm, faith somewhat self church-centered, very happy congregants. This is the archetype that so many, I've seen so many complacent churches become energized. I've been seen. I've seen a lot of average churches become energized. I've seen a lot of churches get into this category because as soon as the church starts to do something, people go, hooray, and they move along on that satisfaction. But it takes a while for those programs to kick in, so the faith is a little bit, still has to catch up with all of the opportunities. But these energized churches, very strong. Vibrant churches are the strongest. Um, 8% of it, you know, growing attendance. Sky, these are the, we need those churches to plant churches. We need no other churches planting churches. We need no other churches doing multi-site. Please do not do multi-site if you're average. All right. We do not need that DNA in the kingdom. This is the DNA we need. Work on your own line, you know, your dirty laundry here, and let's get, you know, get yourself into a better category, and then you can go. Now, I'm really going to be pushing it here, and I knew I was when I put this together, but I'm going to do it anyway. Every church falls into one of these archetypes. This is not helpful. Because I'm putting you in boxes again. I'm not telling you what you can do. Now this, this would be helpful. This would be helpful if you knew where you were, which you will, and you do, somebody who went over here. If you knew where your church was, what your church was, and I'll tell you what, again, reveal reveals nothing. If you've got a gut feel about one of these archetypes being your church, it probably is. All right. What are your steps that you want to take to advance it? in its discipleship culture, if you want to use that language, all right? How do you help them? How do you do that? Because the answer is different depending on where you are. Does anyone want to, I'm not going to do this. I was going to try to break it up and ask you if you wanted to raise your hand about the kind of church you have, but I won't. (laughs) All right, what kind of churches do you have? Yeah, I would say major introverted and what was the other one? Average? In the shadow of? Self-motivated? Sorry. Introverted, average, self-motivated, energized. Oh, okay. That's okay. That's. I mean, I think that's honestly introverted. That's kind of that would be a strong indication of introverted. All right. Um, anybody else have any thoughts? They might feel like complacent was their category. Hard one to admit. But you're average. All right. Any. You lost an average. I, isn't this great? This is confession. All right. Well, because it was too much. Yeah, exactly. It was too much. Okay. Well, let's let's. That's enough confession. We'll just we'll just move on. And here, you guys are going to flip out because you're going to think I'm going to tell you all of the strategies for all of the archetypes, and I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to hit the ones, and you can imagine a lot of these strategies overlap. What am I talking about in terms of strategies? We've talked to many and seen many troubled churches. Remember percent of troubled churches in our database? 
14%. If you put 14% and complacent is 17%, a third of our churches are in those categories. Do you know how much guts it takes to take the reveal survey as a senior pastor? Because you're putting out, you're putting out a, a kind of a report card on yourself, on your people, and how well you're doing on the mission that is closest to your heart. So if a third of the churches in our database fall into troubled and complacent, how many churches in the world or in the country do you think fall into those categories? I just really don't even want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. But we have learned a lot by working with or talking to the ones that we do work with. I'm going to tell you, these are the three steps. And this is the only archetype I'm going to talk about three strategies for. Ruthless reality check. Let me talk about that. What do, what do sports teams do when they're underperforming? Do they kind of hang out, keep opening the doors, hoping the tickets will sell, fire the coach, fire the manager, fire the quarterback, whatever, you know. We do stuff. What do companies do when they're underperforming? Fire the CEO. Ruthless reality check, do you have the right people on the bus? That is number one. And that is a hard thing for churches to do because you don't have what I just talked about. What do sports have that churches don't? Like a 24-7 news cycle with people talking about how well or badly you're doing and also second-guessing your decisions every step of the way. All right, publicly, publicly. You may feel like that in a church, but it's all in the corners, right? All right, what does the corporation, what does Wall Street have that churches don't have? Stock price, stock daily. Look at the P.E. ratios every day. You can see how people are feeling about it, okay? And you can see where your career is going with it, okay, if you're the CEO or something like that. Ruthless reality check. We don't have that accountability, and I think that's what's crippled the church. Crippled the church. And I'm not talking about accountability in terms of numbers, and I hope you don't hear me in that. But the accountability for whether or not we are delivering disciples of Jesus Christ, we just don't have that scorecard. We don't have that up in lights. We don't know how we're doing. All right, and that's what you need, and, you, and most people know. And if you are in a troubled place, you probably need to look at the people on the bus. All right, your first love recharge, this is a great story that comes out of actually an average church. All right, and it was the pastor from South Africa who came in, and he, we were, he wanted someone to go over his report, so I was going over his report with him. And it was just like there was nothing there. Average, just blah, like nothing. There was nothing standing out as a problem or a good thing. No good or bad things, just nothing. And he said, what's going on here? And I said, well, what do you think? I said, average. And I said to him, the whole thing, antidote to average is leadership. And he started to cry. And he said, you know what, Callie? He said, my leadership team and I went on a retreat right before I came here and was seeing the summit, and I was seeing you, and he said, and we all agreed that we were like the church of Ephesus. You know, do you remember the church of Ephesus in Revelation? And Christ says to the church, what? He says, you're doing such great things. Your ministry is so, you're so loyal to me, but you've lost your... How, how, how easy is that to do? I, I worked in a church. I mean, I worked for Willow for years. So, you know, it's just so easy to do it. It's so easy because you're tied up in weekend services and next steps and ministry stuff and all past, all the needs, the celebration, all this stuff. And your, your team can lose the first love. And if your team and you lose the first love, who's never going to feel that? The people you lead, right? People you serve. So how do you do that? I can get into that, but I won't do that right now. But first love recharge as a leadership team. This is leadership team stuff. 
Then we have this integrated high-profile Bible-based campaign. I'm just going to tell you, this is a strategy, the one thing I've seen work in every archetype, every one of them, I'm including vibrant churches in that. And that is having a campaign once or twice a year that brings weekend services, small groups, and children's ministries all in alignment. All right. For a while, everybody is talking about the same stories around the dinner table. Everybody's doing the same stuff in the small groups. Everybody's talking about the same stuff at weekend services. And it just gives a jump start. Complacent churches, perfect strategy for them. Troubled churches, a good strategy for them, but not unless they do the first two things. All right, not unless they do the first two things. All right, now look at this. Complacent churches, I'm not going to do three strategies because the first two you can't even see because I blocked them out. But it's First Love Recharge, the Bible-based campaign. Small group buildup, that's big. Complacent churches need to build community. As they're growing in their faith, they need to build that community. And when you have these campaigns, these Bible-based campaigns, small groups jump. They will, they will double or more because people will agree to be a small group leader. That's easy if it's based on a campaign, and you'll see small groups just grow dynamically and connections grow tremendously. So that's a real, and I'll tell, okay, I'll tell you two other secrets for small groups. What is the biggest barrier to small groups? Small group leaders can be, but if you're giving them a DVD, how hard is that? That's not hard. So I can get over that one. What's another barrier to small groups? Location. Location. True, because people don't want to open their homes, do they? So maybe you give them a nice centralized place, like, for example, the church building or something else, once a week or twice a week, and say, small groups can meet here. And if you meet here, we'll give you the answer to the other obstacle to small groups. Child care. Child care. So that's what I see strong churches doing to inspire small groups. Okay, now I'm going to average churches. I already told you First Love Recharge was big. Spiritual role models is a big one for them. Why is that, average churches? It's, it's like uh, um, reminding people what being Christ-centered looks like. And this combines with a defined spiritual... How many of you guys have a defined discipleship pathway in your church? If, people, if you ask people, what are the steps to go to grow into a disciple of Christ, what would they say? Do, they, do you teach them in like an orientation program? Do they know? Introverted churches, this is your number one thing, to find discipleship pathway. And I'm not talking about go to weekend services and get in a small group and then do serving. No, that's an activity pathway. All right. I'm talking about something along the lines of the continuum. This is what it's like to be spiritually new. I think Bob was, Bobby was calling it an infant. All right. Then you're growing. Then you're getting more mature. There are expectations. Introverted churches need expectations because they just have this blind spot, right? Okay, so I'll skip over that. All right, extroverted church's number one strategy. What is it? Can you read it? Alpha. Alpha. How many of you guys have experienced alpha? All right, I'm a big fan of alpha. And I, 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 it, I, Willow Creek introduced it, and Willow Creek never introduces anything that it hasn't invented itself, so this was big. And we put alpha in, and we've never had more baptisms. Never. I, and, and we aren't an extroverted church, but an extroverted church, why would an extroverted church need alpha? Because what's weak in that church is beliefs. People, and plus, think of my, my uh, church that was in uh, Long Island. You're filled with these commuters, overeducated, you know, self-indulgent kind of people, right? They're running around serving the community, but they aren't, aren't growing in Christ because nobody's challenged them on the whole, that whole part of the equation. And he had, I'll tell you what, my uh, Manhattan, uh, my Long Island guy had like a couple hundred, and this was a church of 300, but up to 200 people showing up on a Tuesday night to go through the 10-week alpha course to kick the tires on the faith. That was, 
It's a good thing. You need something, whether it's Alpha or not. These extroverted churches need something to kickstart the belief system because that's what's a problem. Right. What Alpha? What are you talking about? What, what is Alpha? Oh, you don't know. Okay, somebody who's done Alpha, tell him what Alpha is. Yes, Mar- Margaret will. And one of these Bible-based curriculums that was just introduced was Believe, right? Wasn't that something Randy Frazee and Oak Hills introduced? It, it was. I, you know, I, don't I don't know enough about it. Bottom line is, something that would really focus on what is sort of an abstract thing that can make those beliefs come alive and give people the permission to kick their tires. Kick the tires. And, and so you need trained facilitators who can handle those questions, yes. Which is so good. Again, Roots are shallow here. How do you dig those roots? And if you skip over the whole belief part, you're skipping over the trust thing. You know, opening a Bible without having those fundamental beliefs is good. See, now I'm being helpful. Would you say that? I'm at least, I'm trying to be helpful. I think I'm hitting the more helpful point. Introverted churches, I talked about the defined discipleship pathway, but here are two things, and this has really been a lot of the conversation here at this conference, spiritual mentoring. How many of you have any kind of spiritual mentoring program in your church? Okay, what have you got? And how is that going? Very, well. Very popular. Okay, anybody else have something? Radical mentoring is here. I've seen that in churches. It's done really well. Of course, Navigators 2.7 is uh, also meant. But a mentoring, so many people, you know, the concept of spiritual mentoring is so abstract and it's so hard if it's a blank sheet of paper, whether you're the mentor or the mentee, to get rolling on that and coming up with a curriculum for something like that uh, is great. This is, this is a strategy, though. Would, I, would you say this is a strategy for a troubled church? Probably not top of the list. A complacent church? No, why not? Spiritual mentoring is more for those more mature believers, and those churches with the shallow roots need more of the kickstart on beliefs, on, on, on the jumpstart of a Bible-based campaign, getting in the Word. The, see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not this, what, what you guys called it, the smorgasbord. You don't want a smorgasbord of stuff. Spiritual mentoring might sound cool, but if you don't know how to find the book of Job, maybe you need to do something else, you know, before you do spiritual mentoring. I, now, there are different spiritual mentoring approaches that take you from the beginning to the end. Sure, but... If you're a church pastor who is kind, trying to devote resources to the best next step for your church and you have a complacent church, I would not put spiritual mentoring on the top of your list. It might be number five, but there are other things that would help your church move, I think, better only because that's what I've seen work. Living at campaigns, what am I talking about there? Do you guys do anything that sort of makes faith come alive for people like when they're right there in the auditorium? And my example for this is, uh, is Willow just started doing this. At Christmas time, they bring in all this stuff, and we pack boxes for the prisoners uh, in Illinois. Last year, in fact, we gave boxes to every prisoner in Illinois. They, we were able to pack them. Aha! You're so good! You're so good. Okay, so that is just like unbelievable. Packing seeds that we send over to Africa. But these don't have to be big things. Living at campaigns actually can be campaigns. For example, there's a church in New Jersey that I've talked about before that gave all their people money, but they didn't know how much money was in it. They gave them envelopes with money in it. Now I'm giving you an envelope, giving you an envelope, and you're picking them up on Sunday, and it's a six-week campaign, and you're supposed to hold on to that envelope and carry it with you until you are prompted to give it to someone who needs it. You're prompted to give it to someone who needs it. 
and then tell the story about what happened. Stories poured in about the amount of money matching exactly the need. What was he teaching? Was he teaching benevolence? What was he teaching there? Hearing God's voice, listening to the Holy Spirit, listening to prompting, living it, living it, okay? That's what I'm talking about here. Not so much, you know, I was talking more about activities there. That's more, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I know people are telling me I need to hurry up. I'm hurrying. All right, self-motivated. I'm only going to talk about one here. Well, two, okay. Spiritual capital assessment. This is big, and this is big for the vibrant churches, too. Well, for all your churches, think about if you were a corporation and you wanted to expand. You wanted to launch a new product. You would need capital to do that. What is capital, really? Money. You would need money. All right, and I'm not talking about money capital for churches. I'm talking about spiritual capital for churches. What do churches need to really be able to have the wherewithal to expand? They need two things, spiritual maturity of their people and satisfaction with the church. If you've got people who are happy with the vision of the church and they're growing spiritually, boom, You've got spiritual capital. You've got permission to go for it. Without that, you've got work still to do. Lady leaders with big jobs, my best example of that, that's a self-motivated church, is to put, some, put people who know what they're doing in big jobs that aren't necessarily needing seminary degrees. You know? So that's like the chief of police of Birmingham is the backup pastor for Faith Chapel in, in Birmingham. Put him up there. He's got a full-time job, but, you know, he can knock the socks off a sermon. Great. All right. Now, that was some more seminary training, so that wasn't a good example, but I always like that example. All right. Energized churches. I'm not even going to talk about strategies because we've covered them all. Mentoring, capital assessment, spiritual role models for them. And finally, the only thing for vibrant churches that we haven't covered is an unconventional servant leadership model, which means you challenge your people to go out and give hot chocolate to people when it's cold and water to people when it's hot. And you are just out there finding ways to help your community in really extraordinary. And you might even pay somebody to be on your staff or, or um, draft a lay leader to be in charge of unconventional service strategies. Yes. Would you talk a bit about churches that move sideways? Like, I think our church is kind of average introverted and has gone over to extroverted. I don't think we're moving. <laughs> Well, and what they probably did is introduced a service strategy, right? right? Because they felt like things were stagnating, people weren't excited, so they went into a big service thing, which is great, except they didn't connect the dots to the to the um, need to move forward. You know, the need to move forward in terms of maturity. That's the hard thing is to keep those things in balance, is to because you don't have a scorecard for that, right? They saw probably. Attendance was plateauing, maybe declining. They were hearing like a buzz going down about what was going on at church, maybe complaining about the music, I don't know. But then, you know, they introduce this activity and people go to the activity, but it doesn't necessarily grow their faith. So that's a, that's a reasonable. Okay, I have one last. Can I have one last? I have one minute. How many minutes do I have? This is it. This is it. Oh, I don't have it. Okay, I'm going to, um, that's okay, don't worry about it. I, I, this is when you can hear my voice, because what I want to talk about right now is really personal to me, and it's about what's at stake. I have, uh, I have a son who's 35 years old, and he was hit by a car when he was 11, but he's recovered tremendously, learning disabled, but he, you'd never know it to meet him. He married a woman, we sent him to a college for learning disabled people in Florida, and he met her, and they married. They both, but they have two adorable grandchildren who are perfectly normal. 
uh, perfectly normal. And because parenting was a struggle with learning, to build, especially when we watched the four-year-olds start to like run circles around the parents, we thought maybe they, we could help out. And they live in Illinois, and we actually built an addition on our house to um, allow the, us to help them raise these two children. And two years ago, my daughter-in-law was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And um, we've had a real rough road with that. And it was, it was after we did this house edition, right? We just had bad news on it this week. Um, the cancer's gone to her brain. And there isn't, there, you know, it's going to devastate, devastate my family. And we've tried to put things around it, but one of the most important things we did which I didn't do. My five-year-old grandson did. He went to his mother and dragged her to church one Easter. He said, Mommy, I want to show you my promised land, blah, 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 blah. So she eventually reluctantly went into church on Easter, April 2016, and Bill Hybels knocked the cover off of a message. And she walked out of there and said, I'm not missing this any week. I'm going to come every weekend. She's coming every weekend. She's in a small group. She's reading her Bible. And she's struggling. She's had tough news, and she is not long for this world. Who's, whose job is it to secure her eternity, to help her with that? Who, whose job is it to take care of my grandchildren's eternity? Or mine? And you know what I think? I think it's your job. And sometimes I think, I think we forget how high the stakes are because we get so tied up in what we're doing that we lose sight of we lose sight of the eternity and all the implications with that and I know in your lives and in your work you've got people who are not long for this world are they secure did you are you are we doing enough and sometimes I think we just aren't, and I think a lot of the evidence here suggests we aren't, so it's your job. Do it well. All right, I love you. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from Navigator Church Ministries track called Crockpot Church Cultures in a Microwave World at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker. And don't forget to pick up the free PDF resource called The Start Small, Go Slow Strategy at discipleship.org slash navigators.